What is humanity at its best? You know, everyone seems to have a different answer to that question. Most religions agree that selflessness is at the heart of perfecting humanity. So Buddhism teaches us that the way to paradise is through overcoming selfish desire. You know, with the right amount and the right kind of effort, you can achieve nirvana through self-emptying. Hinduism likewise teaches this. One of the three paths to liberation in the Hindu religion, uh, liberation from personal suffering, is the path of personal renunciation, selflessness. Not necessarily self-giving, just selfless. You know, pop culture teaches us to respect certain admirable qualities as well. So think superheroes. The prototypical superhero, Superman, has a strong moral code. He's preeminently unselfish, willing to be put in harm's way for the good of others. And he has all these miraculous powers that he leverages, but only for benevolent purposes. In philosophical circles, the opinions are a bit more mixed, though. For instance, the widely influential 20th century philosopher Ayn Rand has praised the virtues of rational self-interest. She said in one of her books, the individual should exist for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself for others nor sacrificing others to himself. For her and hundreds and thousands of her followers, humanity at its best is each man for his own best. As we turn into a new year, many of you are probably hoping that the year number changing from 2012 to 2013 isn't the only thing that will change. You want to personally change. You you want to become a better person. But to determine exactly what that means, what exactly is a better person, to answer that question requires a bit more reflection. Most of us tend to make idealistic goals, at least those who deign to uh, making New Year's resolutions, tend to make idealistic goals based on perceptions of the pop culture. So, for instance, I should be thinner. I won't eat cheese anymore. I should be smarter. I'll read more books. I should be progressing more quickly in my career. I'll read a book on leadership. I should have financial freedom, so I'll pay off my debt. I should have an adventure. I'll take up kickboxing. But before we can make progress along some legitimate trajectory, we should know the goal. What is our ultimate target? What is humanity at its best? Well, the Gospel of Luke, as with other Gospels, shows us a portrayal of perfect humanity in the face of Jesus Christ. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, shows us the perfect human as a 12-year-old. And what we find in Luke's short story of Jesus at 12 is a picture of someone who worships God perfectly. True humanity, yet flawless. Humanity at its best. Observe this with me as we begin reading in verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 verse 39. And when they, that is the parents of Jesus, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, 
as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, this is an amazing picture into the life of a child who is God. In this passage, we see at least two aspects of Jesus as a boy. And the first aspect is that Jesus was the perfect worshiper. Jesus is the perfect worshiper. Well, there is much in this passage that we learn about Jesus as the perfect worshiper. First, we should acknowledge that we're dealing with a divine child. Jesus as a perfect worshiper is a divine child. You know, the point of this entire chapter is the identity of Jesus. So just after Jesus is born at the beginning of chapter 2, there in verse 11 of Luke 2, the angel appears to the shepherds and announced to them that a child has been born, but that this is not just any child, but that he is a savior, Christ the Lord. And so his name was Jesus, but his title announced by the angels is Christ, the anointed one of God. This is God come to earth. He's a divine child. And yet, he is still a child. So in verse 39, I read just a minute ago, it says, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Well, that's nearly identical to the summary of the boyhood of John the Baptist in the preceding chapter. It leaves us with the accurate impression that Jesus was stunningly normal, like us in every way, as Hebrews says. To the point that his childhood can be spoken of in much the same way that many children can be described. He increased in wisdom and maturity and in favor with God and man. Now, you should notice that the, the, the details here are rather sparse. There's, there's not a lot about the boyhood of Jesus. Now, in, in literature outside of the Bible, the, the legends about Jesus are not so sparse. These, these aren't true inspired. In fact, most of these accounts are false, and certainly we can't trust them. But in the first few centuries, there were a lot of legends, kind of fairy that had popped up about Jesus, exaggerated lessons, lessons about his boyhood. Like this brief one from, from, uh, from a man named Thomas. He says, When this boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a brook, and he gathered together into the pools of water that flowed by and made it at once clean and commanded it by his word alone. But the son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there, and he took a willow branch, and with it dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged and said to him, You insolent, godless dunderhead, what harm did the pools and the water do to you? Now see, you also shall wither like a tree, and bear neither leaves nor fruit nor root. 
And immediately the lad withered up completely, and Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. But the parents of him who was withered took him away, bewailing his youth, and brought him to Joseph and reproached him. What a child you have who does such things. Well, after this again, he went through the village, Jesus said is, and the lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated and said to him, you shall not go any further on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. But some who saw what took place said, from where does this child spring since every word is an accomplished deed? Well, that is a false account. But it gives you a a picture of the kinds of things that were commonly being said of Jesus as a boy in the first few centuries. Luke, on the other hand, being directed by God to write these things coming from eyewitnesses about the boyhood of Jesus, being led by God to give this true account, shows us a different picture in the, the life of Jesus. No superpowers, just a boy loving his heavenly father. You know, compared to so many false accounts that were circulating about the life of Jesus, Luke really holds back much detail. What his economy of detail signals to us is that Jesus is very normal. You know, he's showing us that Jesus is, is a boy. He's one of us. Doesn't show us a boy using magic-like powers on account of his own exasperation, but rather a boy who is utterly human in his form and his experience. In fact, this passage shows us Jesus doing something that is fundamentally and innately human. He's making progress. He's increasing in wisdom. You know, this is an utterly human thing to do. God doesn't make progress. He is absolutely perfect. You know, to make progress would indicate a need for progress. And yet, this passage shows us a picture of Jesus increasing. You know, verses 40 and 52 in particular indicate that he was growing physically, but also that he was increasing in wisdom. He was increasing in favor with God and man. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Jesus was resolving moral defects as he grew. Jesus wasn't making moral progress. He was making physical progress, and he was working at developing the depth of his relationship and closeness to the Father. He was giving effort toward increasing. You know, the point is that though Jesus was fully God, possessing absolute moral perfection, he was also quite human going through the process of learning, growing in wisdom. This is why he can be sympathetic towards our ineffective efforts at growth. Not because he was ineffective, but because he knows the difficulty of making progress as humans. He has walked the path of humanity. In this sense, Jesus is a model for us. In all the ways that he increased, we also ought to increase you know, we can't mimic those divine aspects of Jesus. We can't call disciples and forgive sins and bring dead people to life and die an atoning death. But increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, we can do that. You know, that, in a sense, provides for us a, a template of year-by-year progress in faith. What Jesus was doing at 12 years old, we should likewise be doing day-by-day, week-by-week, year-by-year. You could look at verse 52 there and evaluate your progress in these areas. Are you growing in wisdom? Are you stewarding your body carefully? Is the depth of your fellowship with the Father increasing? 
Are you working towards strengthening your relationships with those around you? So when I say that Jesus is the perfect worshiper, we must understand that in the sense that he's fully God and fully man. He worships God like every one of us should, and yet he does so in perfection, which none of us ever could. So while he is like us in every respect, you know, absolutely universal, he's also completely unlike us, absolutely unique. Like I said, he is humanity at its best. So Jesus as the perfect worshiper is fully divine and yet fully human. Well, there's something else we should notice here about, about Jesus as the perfect worshiper. And that is that he loved the law of God. He loved the law of God. Look again, beginning in verse 46. Verse 46 says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he certainly isn't honing his magical powers, using them to prove playground superiority. He's not using miracles on a whim, as those false accounts suggest. Instead, he's engaging the law of God. He's demonstrating a love for the law. For three days, he's in the temple doing this. And this wasn't accidental. You know, parents, perhaps you've been in a crowded mall and you've lost track of a young child, let him out of sight. You search all over frantically until you find, find him safe with one of the store clerks. That's not what's going on here. This story indicates that Jesus is moving with purpose. Verse 43 says that when all the feast goers were leaving the city, the boy Jesus stayed behind. Not left behind, not forgotten, not lost. You know, this isn't like the movie Home Alone. Jesus stayed behind. And if that doesn't convince you that the 12-year-old was acting purposefully, look at how he reasons with his mother there in verse 49. He responds to her, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He indicates by his very words that he's there by necessity. I must be. He had to be there, asking questions, listening, like a good student. Now, the teachers in the temple, these teachers Jesus was interacting with, would have been experts in the law, and teachers of it. And, and Jesus' interaction with them would have been over matters of the law. Jesus treasured the knowledge of God and learning more about his Father. In this way, Jesus was the perfect worshiper. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament's vision of a perfect worshiper. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the Old Testament vision of a worshiper. You could draw a line between Psalm 1 and Luke 2. Jesus, at 12 years old, is fulfilling Psalm 1. He is this worshiper who delights in the law of God, who delights to meditate on it day and night, becoming like a fruitful tree planted by life-giving water. In fact, this picture of Jesus loving the law is the precursor of a fruitful life. In Luke 2, at age 12, Jesus is intensely engaged in understanding the law of God. He's listening carefully to the teachers. He's asking questions about the law. But he would not always be the student. Two chapters later, in Luke 4, 
Verse 16 says that Jesus came back to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue and he stood up to read. And the scroll that was handed to him was a scroll of Isaiah. He unrolled it and found the place where it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he rolled the scroll up and gave it back and sat down. And Luke says that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to teach them, saying, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The student of 12 became the teacher. The point is that learning and loving the law of God and increasing in favor with God gave birth to a life of fruitful teaching and ministry. You know, Jesus didn't wake up at 30 years old magically endowed with wisdom from on high. He had devoted himself to carefully memorizing and meditating on and considering the implications of the law and all the prophets and the Psalms. Likewise, we will be fruitful people like trees planted by life-giving water by the exact same means that Jesus became fruitful. That is, by devoted attention to the word of God. Well, notice one final mark of Jesus as the perfect worshiper. He is fully God, yet fully man. He loves the law of God. But also, he understands his identity as the divine son. So as the perfect worshiper, he understands his identity as the divine son. This really seems to be the main point of this particular story, that Jesus has come to a point where he understands his position as the unique son of God. Now, Mary was his mother, and Joseph had adopted him, becoming his father. And Luke 2 paints a fairly normal picture of their family life. You know, the parents feel responsible for their son. They care for him. When they lose track of him, they search for him frantically. Verse 48 says, in great distress. You know, very normal parenting there. And Jesus is clearly their son. He accompanies them on an annual trip. Verse 50 says that he returned with them to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. In other words, he rendered constant obedience. He was their son. He knew it, they knew it, and they each fulfilled those roles just as you might expect. And yet, consider the dialogue again between Jesus and Mary. His mother says in verse 48, Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus replies, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So Mary says something about Jesus' father, and then Jesus indicates something completely different about his father. Now, this is no wisecrack, though. This, this is Jesus realizing that, that Mary is insensitive towards truth she knows. He knew that his mother was overlooking his true father. So he's not being sarcastic. He's using this scenario for instruction, to instruct his parents. And yet verse 50 goes on to say, they did not understand what he said to them. Now, if you're the parent of a 12-year-old, you doubtless know the experience of trying to instruct your 12-year-old, and they just don't understand. And even if they do obey, it's like they don't quite get the bigger picture you're trying to communicate to them. Well, in this case, it's the 12-year-old who instructs and paints the bigger picture. And it's the parent's who do not understand. Now, if you're a 12-year-old, don't get any wise ideas. 
What Jesus is recognizing here is that he is unique. He has a unique, unparalleled relationship with his Father in heaven. This is why Jesus feels this compulsion to remain in the presence of his heavenly Father, in my Father's house. Again, Jesus fulfills the picture of the perfect worshiper from the book of Psalms. So think of Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. Psalm 27 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. That psalm finds its clearest fulfillment right here in Luke 2. As Jesus longs to be in the house of the Lord and inquires about him in his temple and gazes on the beauty of the Lord, I must be in my Father's house. Let this passage push in on you for a moment. As you look forward to the coming year, you know, it's a providentially apt time for you to reflect on your own progress as a worshiper. Just as Jesus was progressing by very natural means along a trajectory of deeper and deeper fellowship with his Father, we, as followers of Jesus, must take hold of those same means in doing the same thing that Jesus was doing, growing in fellowship with the Father. So you come to a point now where you can evaluate your progress in that regard. Stop and consider. How are you progressing in faith? As individual members of Christ Covenant Church, we want to, year by year, we want, we want to consider if our love for the Father is growing. You love God more this year than last year. Do you love the Father more today than you did on December 30th, 2011? Do you have a greater intensity of interest toward him? Do you thirst for God? This can be hard questions to consider. Maybe you could think through those questions by considering the very things that are so clearly evident here in the life of Jesus in Luke 2. He loved the law of God, and he was acutely aware of God as his Father. So for you, as you try to answer that question, do I love God more this year than last year? You can evaluate along those two lines. Do I love the law of God? Am I acutely aware of God as my loving Father, believing he favors me? If your initial response to those questions is no, you don't feel like you're loving God more or thirsting for him, then just take some time to consider why that might be. You know, a spiritually dry heart may come for many reasons. Perhaps you've drunk too deeply of the desiccating fountains of the world and not deeply enough of the satisfying rivers of God. Your attention has been more captured by an iPad, for instance, than by the Bible that you use it to read. A love for the world, the things the eyes see, can certainly crowd out an interest and love towards God. Perhaps instead, you feel dry because you suffer from what the Puritans called God's desertions. Like Job, feeling abandoned by God and forsaken. You may have that kind of feeling like you're the only person in the room this morning whom God has forgotten. I think in that case, the best concise counsel a man can offer you comes from, 
comes in the words of William Grinnell. William Grinnell was an English pastor in the 1600s. He wrote a great little book called The Christian in Complete Armor, in which he said, the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God. He said this as a comment on Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10, which says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Of course, God never withdraws, but the dark clouds of life certainly might obscure our sensitivities to the warm rays of his goodness. Four days ago, it was dark all day long. You know, the sun was actually shining as bright as ever, but here in Raleigh, in our little corner of the world, all we could see was dark clouds and rain all day. The clouds of life may be diminishing your awareness of God's unending goodness, making the way of progress in love for God very difficult. If that's you, please, in your minds and in your hearts, consider Jesus, cling to Jesus, who was a good friend of grief and yet grew in favor with God. So the question we're considering is, do you thirst for God? Do you love him more this year than last? Now, if not, consider why not. That may be because you're too full of love for the things your eyes see or could be because of your suffering. But it could also be just because of prolonged physical or mental fatigue. You know, fatigue can often inhibit our love for God. If you sense that to be the case in your life, the cause and the cure are rather obvious, but should be a point of reflection for you. So if you answer the question, do I love God more this year than last, with a yes, well, give thanks for that and nurture that love. But if you answer with a no, then consider what it may be that is stunting your growth. You know, take it up as a matter of conversation with a brother or sister in Christ. This week, if you have a spouse, begin there. Seek the prayers and encouragement of those around you. We must not shame one another for struggle. Rather, lift up one another in the midst of it and encourage one another. Now, whether you feel crushed by the weight of those questions, perhaps the guilt they produce, or if you feel grateful that you are making progress, in either case, we should turn our eyes to one other aspect of Jesus that's on display in this passage. Not only is Jesus the perfect worshiper making progress in his love for the Father, but also Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. In other words, Jesus is more than an example for us. And whenever we look at the perfect life of Christ, which is on full display here in this passage, we're tempted to reduce Jesus to a mere example. You know, make progress like Jesus. Love the Word like Jesus. Love the Father like Jesus. Love others like Jesus. But if Jesus were only an example for us, then we would have only condemnation. You know, we would be left with the crushing weight of imperfection. We never measure up to the example. We can't flatline Jesus like that. You know, do better is not the Christian gospel. As we see Jesus living perfectly, we do find him to be an example, but more importantly, we find him to be a substitute. You know, his work is more comprehensive than just living an exemplary, exemplary life. Jesus lived a substitutionary life. He lived the life we ought to live, but are unable to. Let me explain this another way. 
You remember I said the angel announced in chapter 2, verse 11, that a baby was born who would be a savior, Christ the Lord. Now the question is, how does that baby who becomes a perfect 12-year-old, who becomes a 33-year-old martyr, how does that baby become a savior? You know, when we think of Jesus as our savior, we normally think of him on the cross. We envision him there. And we ought to. Because it's on the cross that Jesus bore the infinite wrath of God that we deserve. But even as we exalt the cross, where a grown man bore our penalty, we must also think of Jesus the boy, living perfectly, obedient in all things. You know, the cross was the pinnacle of his obedience, and yet it was preceded by an entire life of obedience. And just as the cross saves us from the penalty that we deserve, so the perfect life of Christ earned for us the righteousness that God requires. You know, you wouldn't dare depend on your own righteousness, would you? I know I wouldn't. You know, would you stake your life on the hopes that you have been good enough? How would you know something like that? I mean, how do you measure good enough? And how do you know if you've cr- crossed this threshold, good enough? You know, but I can look at Jesus I can look at his perfect life. I can observe him living perfectly and say, I'm going to depend on his righteousness. I renounce all hope of being good enough. If there is some way for me to get the righteousness of that 12-year-old there in the temple, I need that way. This is where the message of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, becomes absolutely invaluable. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who knew no sin, Jesus, this 12-year-old we observed this morning, became sin. He became our sin. And through him, we may become the righteousness that God requires. There's a substitution that happens. So when you think of this verse, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You should think, wow, Christ was perfect. I am not perfect. I need that 12-year-old son of God's perfection. I need it to be mine. And then remember, by faith, it can be yours. In fact, Jesus obeyed for you. You know, it was not for himself that Jesus was righteous, but for you and in your place. Of course, he was by necessity perfect being God. And yet, the prime intention of this boy accomplishing holiness was that he might give his holy life to you as a gift. Galatians 4, 4 says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus was born under the law, that is, he was obedient to the law completely for us, for this purpose, to redeem us from the law. We are crushed by the obligation to fulfill God's law, and yet we are redeemed 
by Christ who fulfills it for us. So by faith in Christ, by rooting all of our hope in him, we become one with him in in a mystical, spiritual way. The hymn writer calls it mystic, sweet communion. Through union with Christ, his model life becomes ours. You know, this is the substitute. He becomes a substitute for us. Martin Luther said it this way. Through faith, you are so closely united with Christ that you can say with confidence, Christ's righteousness, victory, life, etc. are mine. And Christ in turn says, I am this sinner. That is, his sins, death, are mine because he clings to me and I to him. For through faith we have been joined together into one flesh and bone. This union with Christ is your only hope for Jesus to be your Savior. You need his righteousness. You need this 12-year-old in the temple loving the law of God, thirsting for fellowship with his Father. You need to be one with him so that when God calls you to account, to judge whether your life is completely pleasing to him, so that at that point you can cling to Christ and say, we are one. You, you must attribute his righteousness to my account. I have not loved you perfectly, and I have not loved others as I ought, but he has. And Jesus will look at the Father and say, it's true. We are one body. You know, the Bible calls Jesus the head of his body, which is the church, you know, all the Christians in the room this morning. Think about it for a moment your head remains uncovered and speaks for your body. Your eyes communicate deep truth about your feelings. Your mouth articulates and expresses your thoughts. Your head speaks for your body because it cares for the interests of your body. Your head cares for your body in this way because they are one. You know, what is of interest to your head is also of interest to your body. And vice versa, what is of interest to your body is also of interest to your head. So Christ is vitally joined to his body. He is the head of the body, the church. And we, the church, are inseparably linked to him such that Christ promotes the interest of the body and speaks for its benefit, for our benefit, to the Father. And the Father, on his part, As he favors the interest of Christ, the head, so he favors the interests of the body. For he does not look on the church as separate from Christ, but as one with him in all things, including his perfect life. As you consider the implications of this, you must realize that through faith in Jesus, you can be free from guilt. You won't be held accountable. As you review your own perhaps unimpressive track record over the past year, it doesn't need to weigh you down. And as you perhaps make goals and anticipate failure in them in the coming year, again, don't be discouraged. You don't make progress as one whose life depended on it. Your hope of eternal life does not depend on your progress 
but rather on Christ and on him alone. So this glimpse in Luke 2 into the life of a 12-year-old Jesus shows us humanity at its best. A perfect worshiper, loving the law of God, loving the Father, seeking to improve on his fellowship with the Father, increasing in favor with him and with others. We certainly find him to be a model to emulate in regards to progress in faith. But more than that, we see him living out the righteousness that we will never attain. By faith, this Jesus is ours. So let's give thanks for Christ, who satisfies the demands of God's law. Let's also pause as a congregation now and ask for grace to walk as more sincere worshipers in the year to come. We'll have a chance now to respond in prayer before Ray comes and closes us. As you do respond in prayer, pray briefly, but also pray loudly so that others can hear you. Let's rejoice and give thanks for this Savior together. Lord, we are grateful that you have given Christ to us. This glimpse, the only one that you've given us into his life before he turned 30, is is a a picture for us of his righteousness, of, of him doing the very things we find beyond our grasp to do. And so we're thankful for that. We see his righteousness and we give thanks that you have offered it to us as a gift. Thank you, Lord.